Welcome back, Brown Girls. Ashanti here, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Today, as part of our series featuring the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, we'll hear from Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. From being a public school teacher in Oklahoma to founding the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and now a U.S. Senator, Senator Warren's path has helped shape the issues that she is fighting for on the campaign trail. I was able to catch up with the Senator right before she gave a signature speech at Clark Atlanta University, a historically black college and university in Atlanta. Senator Warren, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to our listeners. How are you today? I'm doing great. You know, better to be in the fight than on the sideline. Amen to that. So we are in Atlanta. We're coming off of the debate. You're about to do a big speech here at Clark Atlanta University. I'm asking all the candidates, what was the moment you decided, I have to get into this fight? I have to run for president. Can I give a turning point? I wasn't all the way to president, but boy, was it a moment. When Donald Trump, this is back in 2017, he'd just been president for a very short time, and he's pushing Jeff Sessions to be the attorney general. And you know Jeff Sessions' history, mm-hmm. and particularly his history on race. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had before, you know, served in Alabama as a U.S. attorney. And so when he had come up for a judgeship many years earlier, Coretta Scott King had written a letter about, no, 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 do not confirm him. And Ted Kennedy, whose seat I now have in the United States Senate, had read that letter into the record about, frankly, just what a racist Jeff Sessions was. And that had been back in the 80s. So Sessions is up. The Republicans are going to do a vote on him. I went down to the Senate floor, and I decided I'm going to read Coretta Scott King's letter from all those years ago. But it's about the same man. And so I start reading the letter, and of course, this is when Mitch McConnell goes to the floor of the Senate and says uh, that I have to stop, uh, and I need to be thrown off the floor of the Senate. He says that uh, I had been warned, I had been given an explanation. Nevertheless, I had persisted and threw me off the floor of the Senate for reading Coretta Scott King's letter. And... I appealed the ruling of the chair, it's called, and made everybody come in. It's like 8.30 at night. And every single Republican voted to throw me off the floor of the Senate for reading Coretta Scott King's letter. And two things came of that. The first one is I went outside the Senate chamber, and I just read it on YouTube. And the last time I looked, it had something like 10 million views. The second was I thought, okay, that's what this fight is about. And I'm going to be in this fight all the way. That is powerful. And for our listeners who have not watched it, definitely go and watch it. I remember I was watching it, and that's where we got the nevertheless she persisted, which is a rallying cry for so many women. And as I mentioned, we had the debate last night, and there is one response that you gave that I really do want to hone in on. The candidates were answering questions about reproductive freedom. And you have said, rich women will always have the opportunity to get an abortion, you know, something to that effect, and that 
it would just really harm poor women. Yeah. And it was a predominantly black and brown audience. And I heard lots of women around me just going, wow, yes. And then someone said, I've never heard a white woman talk like that. Why do you feel it's important for you to make those statements? Issues of racism cannot simply be issues for black and brown women. They should be issues for all of us. And we have to be willing to confront them head on. We've lived long enough pretending that everything is race neutral. It is not. And so you can read these statutes that seem to be on their face. Oh, everybody can get a mortgage. Oh, uh, nobody can get access to an abortion, right? Everybody can get a student loan. And yet, if you don't stop to look at how that affects black and brown women differently from how it affects white women, then what we'll do is just perpetuate one generation after another of a black-white wealth gap, a black-white health gap, a black-white entrepreneurship gap, a black-white criminal justice gap. We cannot continue to do that in America. It is time for tough conversations, but honest conversations that confront our history and confront the role our government officially played in that history and make changes. You're speaking so much on these issues. You're one of the candidates that always talks about it. And over the past few months, we've seen you garner lots of support from women of color, including Congresswoman Deb Holland, who we have also had on the podcast. Got to plug that. So everyone go listen to that episode. She's fabulous. And you also got a very big endorsement from Black Women 4. And when I was reading their platform, their endorsement of you, one of the things that they said is she wants us to hold her accountable, that she'll always listen. So to see this much support, tell our listeners a little bit about your numerous plans and how they would impact Black and Brown women. So I think of everything that puts pressure on working families in America. Um, For example, trying to you know, send your kids off to school and uh, to get a good education for them, college education. And then I always stop to say, and how does it affect black and brown families differently? Let's, let's rework this question. How does it affect women of color differently? So here's an example. Right now in America, uh, people are struggling with student loan debt. There's about a hundred, uh, about 1.5 trillion student dollars, $1.5 trillion in student loan debt, outstanding. And it's growing at a rate of about $100 billion a year. So that starts the conversation and says, we need to do something really big. And I have a plan for that. Two cent wealth tax, we can cancel student loan debt for about 95% of the folks who've got it. But now let's look at it from the perspective of race. Turns out African-Americans are more likely to borrow money to go to school, borrow more money while they're in school, and have a harder time paying for off their debt after they're out of school. Recent study shows out of the Department of Education, 20 years out, that those who borrowed money back in college, 94% of white people have paid off their debts. 94%. Good for them. You want to guess the percent for blacks? 5% versus 94%. Okay, so that tells you, wow, 
let's take a deep breath and say the urgency of this is not only to deal with the crushing student loan debt burden, but look at what it's doing to people of color. Look at how it's generation after generation crushing opportunity. So we're saying to young people, go get a, uh, go to college. If you have to borrow money, it's okay. It'll pay off. Whoa. So I don't want to tell them not to go to college. College opens a million doors. How I think of this is it means we can't just do this blindly. So let me tell you two things that I said I'm going to do differently. I've got a plan for student loan debt forgiveness but I've carefully worked it so we're forgiving debt for about 95% of students. And the reason for that is I found the place where we can do it that will help close the black-white wealth gap. If you're not careful in how you do this, you actually expand the black-white wealth gap because there are some people out at the far edge who are well-to-do doctors, for example, who have a whole lot of student debt, could afford to pay it back, and uh, more likely are white, and they drive it up and they drive up the cost of the program. So for me, it was important to look at the race data in making a decision on where to draw these lines. So I get to sign that into law. We will close the black-white wealth gap for people who borrow money to go to school by more than 20 points. This is historic, but that doesn't get to the root of the problem. So here's, here's the rest of what I want to do. I want to make it possible for everybody to go to college without having to borrow money. So I've got tuition-free college at technical school, two-year college, four-year college at all of our state universities. I think that's great. I'm expanding the Pell Grants so they would apply to families with a little higher income and also provide a little more money. But to me, that's not enough. I want to invest in the next generation of black leaders. I want to invest in the next generation of black teachers. So part of my education plan is all the things I described plus a $50 billion investment into historically black colleges and universities. So you could go tuition-free to an historically black college or university, whether it's public or private, and they would have a special fund just for them, and for those universities to do what they need to do, whether it's invest more in their buildings, hire more teachers, they may want more counselors, more support staff, new dorms, but the point is make that investment. And it's partly for historic reasons, you know, over a hundred years ago. We invested public dollars in all the state universities, and then turned around and mostly said, to black people, you're not welcome here. The HBCUs, as you know, were largely built through charity, through the black churches, people who pitched in a few extra bucks. And God bless the HBCUs, but they've been doing the most with the least for the longest time. So partly I see this historically as saying, let's level the playing field from all that we were doing wrong for so long. But I also think of it as the investment in the future. This is about how everybody, everybody gets a shot in an education. How black women, whether they grow up in 
well-to-do families or they grow up in really poor families. They got a chance to get out there, to get an education, not take on debt, and do with their lives whatever it is they want to do. One last question that I ask all of the guests, what advice do you have, even though being a white woman, for the brown girls? And we have non-brown girls listening out there that say, I want to be like her. I want to be a teacher from Oklahoma who's able to become a U.S. senator who's now running for president. What advice do you have for those people who are saying, I know I can and want to do so much more? Persist. Persist. It is. It's, you know, there are always plenty of guys who'll tell you to sit down. He'll tell you to be quiet. He'll tell you why that's not a good idea. He'll tell you why that's too hard. Who'll tell you why not to fight for that? Who'll, and they mean it only in your own best interest, dear. But just quit. You get plenty of advice like that. Don't listen to it. Get out there and persist. And the thing is, it doesn't mean you have to persist in the same thing. I knew what I wanted to do from the time I was in second grade. I wanted to be a public school teacher. And by the time I graduated from college... My family didn't have the money for college application, much less send me off to four years of university. So I have a story that has a lot of bumps and twists and turns. I got married at 19. I'd had a scholarship to college, but got married at 19 and dropped out, thought I'd given up on this, found a commuter college that cost $50 a semester, finished my diploma, and became a special education teacher. That was my dream job. But by the end of the first year, I was visibly pregnant. The principal did what principals did in those days. He wished me luck and hired someone else for the job. So there I am at a home. I got a baby. I can't get a job. I can't get back into teaching at that point. So I thought, well, I will, I will go to law school. Found a public law school, cost me $450 a semester, baby on hip, went off, did three years of law school, graduated visibly pregnant, took the bar, passed the bar, you'll love this part, practiced law for about 45 minutes. It turned out it just wasn't for me, but I didn't give up. I went into teaching law. My first love was teaching, so I traded the little kids that I'd had in special ed for big kids in law school and just just kept building it. I feel so blessed in my life, so grateful for the opportunities that were in front of me, a college that cost $50, a chance to do something. But most of all, it was whenever I hit a wall, I just feel around and figure there's a door here somewhere. I'm going to find it, and I'm going to kick it open. And that's how I've spent most of my life and still out there doing it. Thank you, Senator, for your time and for persisting. We appreciate it. To learn more about Senator Warren and her policies, visit her campaign website, elizabethwarren.com. Stay up to date with us in between episodes on the BGG website, www.thebgguide.com and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. 
The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Until next time, Brown Girls.